you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 10 today. <clears throat> if you hear squeaking, the, uh, the waiters leaked. I thought about preaching barefoot, but <laughs> didn't know how that would go over yet. We'll get there someday. I'm not joking. <laughs> Just this week, a group of people gathered in the Oval Office to lay hands on uh, President Trump and to pray for him. They were not all my flavor of people theologically press lumped them all together as evangelicals. Some were what I consider evangelical, orthodox Christians. Some were not. A few of them were Southern Baptists, some of whose names you probably would know if I mentioned them. One was Ronnie Floyd, pastor of Cross Church in Springdale, Arkansas. Also, they're in Rogers and another town, three locations now. And uh, Dr. Floyd has been past president of our convention, and he was the one they called on to lead the prayer. Whether or not you're a fan of the president, and Ronnie Floyd did not endorse Donald Trump, but nevertheless, whether or not you're a fan of the president, we're called to pray for our leaders and those in authority. And it should be a good thing that he was willing to be prayed for and that prayer was taking place in the most important political office in the world. Yet if you were paying attention to the news this week, there was vitriol from some quarters along various lines from separation of church and state to God being a fairy tale to Jesus would not pray for somebody like Donald Trump. There was also some perplexity from some people in the press, supposedly educated people, who seemed to be unfamiliar with how Christians sometimes pray for one another and laying their hands on each other, particularly in the Pentecostal tradition, which comprises now 500 million Christians on the face of the earth. And so Erin Burnett of CNN, in introducing the story about the prayer, she put up uh, the picture of the president there being prayed for, and she said this, and next, a pretty stunning image. And let me just give you a quick peek of it. The president bowing his head in prayer in the Oval Office. I guess that was beyond the pale for her. And all these people sort of touching him, she said. It's very strange. We're going to tell you what happened here. Now, the content of Dr. Floyd's prayer was similar to a prayer he has prayed many times over, over various leaders. He says he prayed daily for President Obama and his family. And Dr. Floyd is known for being a great man of prayer and fasting. He's done this for years with leaders, and he said, quote, I prayed for the protection for the president and the vice president. He was also in the room because we live in a very difficult day in our country. I prayed for God to lead them and for them to rely on the Lord for strength and wisdom. Dr. Floyd is right that we do live in a very difficult day in our nation. We are politically divided, and we have many other fault lines that are being exposed in our culture. And you and I are not immune from all that is taking place around us. And I think all of us feel the tension if we're plugged in in any way in our society. You feel it in your neighborhood. You feel it in your workplace. Sometimes you feel it within your own families. Even now in our country, we have people 
actually, I heard this week in the news, selecting where they're going to live, neighborhoods or towns based upon the political makeup of most of the people that live there. In other words, I'm going to move to this town in Oregon because everybody there is a liberal And I don't even want to meet somebody who isn't a liberal in the grocery store. I don't want them to be my neighbor. I don't want anything to do with them. I never want them in my circle. And so we actually have people in our nation today choosing where they're going to live using that criteria. So we are a people in many ways that are building fences between ourselves. At the core of it all is the fact that we have a nation that is spiritually broken. We live in a nation of spiritually broken people, and many of them do not even realize the depths of their brokenness. The moral divisions that often propel the political divisions with different views of what government should do, what government should sanction or condemn, are rooted in the fact that much of our culture has great spiritual blindness. Well, how can we, you and I as Followers of Jesus, I'm speaking predominantly to those in this room who've already crossed over, who've given your lives to Christ. How can we navigate through these waters in which we find ourselves? What should be the central thing that characterizes us, that sets us apart, makes us distinctive from the acrimony that surrounds us? Well, that'll be our focus this morning in a message I've entitled, Living Above the Fences, And we find our help from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, where Paul becomes autobiographical a bit here about what's going on in his mind and in his heart and in his actions for what he calls his people. Romans 10, 1, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to Christ or to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes." The book of Romans is perhaps the greatest book in the New Testament regarding laying out for us the doctrine of salvation. Every book of the Bible, all 66, is inspired equally by the Holy Spirit. Every book of the Bible is important. God put it together the way he wanted it to be put together through human authors. But as far as a central book that lays out the doctrine of salvation, the book of Romans is the Mount Everest of the Bible. It shows us how a person can be saved and what God has done to save us completely. And in this passage, Paul reveals to us what is in his heart as he's been considering the plight of his people, the Jews. He was born a Jew. And although after his conversion, his primary ministry was to the Gentiles, and Peter was primarily the one who reached out to the Jews, nevertheless, The Apostle Paul still reached out to Jews. Often when he would go to towns on his missionary journeys, he would go first to the synagogue. And so he had profound love for his ethnic family. And so as you would think of yourself today as an American, rooted in the values of this nation, in the uh, principles of this nation, Paul would have considered himself a Jew rooted in the 
religion of his nation formerly when he was a Jew before he was a Christian, and also in his blood, ethnicity. He was born a Jew. His parents were Jewish. And so he has a deep affinity for his ethnic family. Now, when you read the book of Romans, Paul tracks along two lines in the first 11 chapters when he talks about Jews and Gentiles. You see him using both of those categories. And what he is doing, this is a way of referring to all of humanity. It's how a Jew would refer to all of humanity, Jew and Gentile. Jews had God's election to give them his law, to reveal himself to them. Gentiles had the law of God written upon their hearts, even though they didn't have the Ten Commandments in the code the Jews had. And so Paul tracks along that line, talking about both of these groups of people, that is, all of humanity, And he says that all of them have sinned, all of them are lost, but God has acted in Christ to come and live and die and rise again to give them salvation as a gift if they will repent and believe. Christ died for the sins of the Jews and for the Gentiles. But when we come to chapters 9 through 11, we find that since the gospel has been going forth, The Jews, on the whole, have hardened to the gospel of the good news. The gospel was first preached in Jerusalem. We see a lot of Jews get saved. Even some of the leadership in the uh, Jewish uh, religious circles become followers of Jesus. Paul himself had been a religious leader in Judaism. He gets converted. But as time went on, the Jews hardened themselves. And even today, the vast majority of the ethnic Jews on this planet are not followers of Jesus. There are some, known as Messianic Jews, who are disciples of Jesus, who are Christians, but for the most part, Israel turned away and rejected Jesus as the Messiah, while the Gentiles started turning to Jesus in droves. So the question arose, what's going on with my people, with the Jews? And so Paul, in chapters 9 through 11, lays out for us what's happened with the Jews. And I don't have time to get into that, but he gives insight here as to what is taking place among his people in the electing of God and the Lord going to save the Gentiles, and then in the end, the Jews will turn back to Christ. But what I want us to see today in this message, Living Above the Fences, I want us to look at Paul's heart, his life here toward his people. In these opening verses, he opens up his soul about what he is feeling about them his spiritual burden for them, his concern for them. And he provides for us a marker against which we can test ourselves in relationship to our people, the peoples of the world where God has chosen to allow us to be born and to live. So what do we see about Paul here? That needs to be something that becomes part of how I live in relationship to my culture that is very fragmented and broken and divided. And many Christians get caught up in that same acrimony, same divisions. We live on the level of the fences. How can you and I live above the fences? Paul shows us how that takes place. And we need to adopt what he does in his life and what he did. First of all, Paul's words reveal to us that in relationship to his people, he both understood his people and he loved them. You'll notice in verse 1, 
brothers and sisters, he's writing to the Christians here, my heart's desire. See, he's talking about his heart. And prayer to God for the Israelites, his people, is that they may be saved. Now, in the previous chapter, he's been describing the tragedy of the Jews in relationship to their position about Jesus. And he is brokenhearted in describing their condition. He takes no joy in recounting the condition of the Jews, his people as being lost, having rejected Jesus. And he talks about them in stark terms. If you go back to the end of chapter 9, he talks about them stumbling over Jesus. He also uh, talks about them being uh, blind and hard in their heart toward the Lord. He speaks of their ignorance about Jesus. But while he can use those very strong terms of saying they've stumbled over Jesus, they're ignorant, their hearts are hard, which he says early in the book of Romans. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 9, we can see that Paul would have written this in tears. So in chapter 10, he says, my heart's desire is that they will be saved. If you go back to chapter 9 in verses 1 through 3, you can get a little bit more of a picture of, of what Paul is feeling inside. He says in Romans 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul is so burdened for them that he says, I would be willing to give up my own salvation if the Jews could turn to Christ and be saved. I would be willing to go to hell if my people would turn to Christ and be saved. That's Paul's heart. That's what he's feeling. And so he writes out of that. He is so burdened. Now, it isn't as though the Jews are succumbing to rampant atheism. The Jews are not atheists. No, they were very zealous for God. A lot of Jews today are atheists, but these were not. These people were zealous for God in a wrong way. They were seeking to be right with God in the wrong way, by their works. They have a lot of zeal, but Paul says they are ignorant. They don't have the right knowledge. They're very religious people. And they're willing to pay a price for trying to remain faithful to their beliefs, but they can't measure up. And Paul's broken about that. I mean, these people were so serious. If you think back to this particular point in time, and the Romans were ruling over them. And you had one elderly Jew, a man named Eleazar, in uh, Jerusalem. And he was uh, outed. Somebody betrayed him, basically. And he was uh, demanded to engage in the sacrificial cult of Zeus, Olympias, by the ruling officials. And he refused to do it. And they also were commanding that he would eat pork and participate in that. And Jews were not to eat pork. He refused to do it. And so they beat him severely. As a matter of fact, they beat him so badly that... Um, some of the people that were participating in it felt bad for him, and they brought him some other meat that was not pork and said, eat this and say that you ate pork so that you don't have to go through this. 
But Eleazar, the pious Jew, he said, I will show myself worthy of my old age and set a noble example for the young of how to die a good death willingly and nobly for the revered and holy laws. And so you can read about that in 2 Maccabees, a Jewish book, that he was then martyred, he was killed. So these Jews were very zealous people, but they were zealous for the wrong thing without knowledge. These people were so zealous that Paul, from time to time, had been a victim of their zeal. Paul has become a Christian. He is preaching about Jesus. These people don't just simply disagree with what Paul is doing. Then their zeal, they want Paul to die, just as they crucified Jesus. And so if you go back to the book of Acts, chapter 9, right after Paul becomes a Christian, And he starts preaching about Jesus. The scripture says in Acts 9 and verse uh, 23 through 25, it says, After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So he had to be helped out of town and escape or they were going to kill him. And then as he's doing his missionary work throughout the Roman Empire, you recall we looked at this last week briefly over in Acts chapter 14. He goes to a town called Lystra in Asia Minor, which today is in the nation of Turkey. And he's seeking to evangelize and plant a church there. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 14, in verse 19, it says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over, They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. So these Jews came and they instigated the crowd to try to kill him by stoning him to death. Then they dragged him out of town because they thought he was dead. He wasn't. He got up and went back into the town. But that's that's what the zeal of the Jews has done to the apostle Paul. And it continued throughout his ministry. Yet when you read Paul here, what does he say about these people who wanted to kill him physically? He says, my heart's desire is for them that they would be saved. He says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart over my people, and I would be willing to be damned and go to hell if they could be saved. You see, in Paul's heart, he had no animosity toward them because he knew their greatest problem was a spiritual problem. They were lost. They were separated from God. And in their fallenness, they were broken, even though they didn't realize that they had zeal for God. They thought they were really pursuing God. Paul knew they were not, and they were in darkness. He has, uh, they have in their hearts, as he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, he describes them a little bit more for us when he says about the Jews in uh, chapter 2, verse 5. He says, that because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. So they have stumbled over Jesus. They're ignorant, even though they think they're seeking after God. And he says over here, they have stubborn and unrepentant hearts. And they have zeal for the wrong thing, and it leads them to try to kill Him as He had tried to kill Christians before He was a Christian. But yet Paul has no animosity toward them. 
During this time in our culture, it is easy for us to be pulled down to the level of seeing people through our political positions, our economic beliefs, our moral positions, and to fall into the pigeonholing of people and stereotyping of people. It's easy to be pulled into that us-them division. Before his conversion, Paul would have been that type of a person. You remember what he said about his past life. If you go to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul is describing himself before he became a Christian. And he says in Philippians 3 verse 5, he says, He had been circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, he was one who crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's. He was a thoroughgoing, committed Jew. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul was a law-keeping, zealous Jew himself, and he would have fallen into living along those types of distinctions. Here, And he says here, I was in the camp of the Pharisees. He'd been a Pharisee. Pharisees were not just a religious force, they were also a political force. And they stood between the zealots. Remember one of Jesus' early disciples was Simon the Zealot? And the zealots were a group of Jews who wanted to fight basically guerrilla warfare to overthrow the Romans. They wanted to use the sword. They were fighters against the oppressive force. That was one political group. Then you had the Herodians who were a faction of the Sadducees and they were in sympathy with the Roman rulers and the pagan culture. They were the liberals of the culture. And the Pharisees were the popular with the people, the main religious teachers, the guys who often ruled in the Sanhedrin in the Jewish uh, ruling leadership. And so Paul would have had a life as this Pharisee, this Jew of the Jews, in which he would have seen people in all these divisions, right? The Herodians, the liberals, the zealots who want to burn down everything so they can have their way. He was a Pharisee. But after his conversion, Paul came to see his people no longer in parts, but in the whole. So now he writes that he is burdened. Notice he says in chapter 9 again of Romans, what does he say about the anguish in his heart? Who is it for? Are you all awake? Who does he say it's for? He says, I have great sorrow and ceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel, all of the people of Israel. He now looks at them as one above the fences through the eyes of a servant of the Lord. They are now without Jesus and they need the message. So as followers of Jesus... If you're in here and profess to be a Christian, we, once we are Christians, we have become a part of a movement that is transnational. I'm an American, born here by God's will in this time and in this place. But who I am now transcends simply being a citizen of this nation. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag, ultimately. And to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. 
one brotherhood uniting all Christians. That's our ultimate sacrifice, our ultimate allegiance in that way. And so, God has placed me here. I am a, an American. I love my nation. I speak the language. God in His sovereignty chose for me to be birthed here. But I am called to make disciples of all the peoples of the earth. And yet, for most of us, as far as proximity is concerned, most of that effort is going to take place among our people, where we live, among the Americans. And I must rise now to the point that I no longer see people in local categories, but rather I view them through ultimate categories. I view them now as an ambassador of Jesus. Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he's talking about being an ambassador for Jesus? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 16 through 20, He's talking here about being the representative of Jesus to reach his people and the Gentiles. Notice what he says in the text, verse 16. Have you ever noticed this in your Bible? If you haven't, underline it. It begins in verse 11 talking about being given this ministry of reconciliation. Christ's love, he says in verse 14, compels us. We're convinced that Jesus died for people, and he died for people to be saved, for all people to be saved. And he was raised again. I want you to read verse 16 out loud with me, would you? 2 Corinthians 5, 16. You're there? So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He here goes on to talk about people being new in Christ. And you can see that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, those things he says in Galatians. But he doesn't just see that post-salvation. Paul is here saying that I no longer view people through the eyes of the flesh. I no longer view people anymore in that way from a worldly point of view. But I see them as people who need the Savior, and I am His ambassador, and that is my primary chief calling in my life. Now, when you and I look at our people in this nation, while we still are a nation where more people go to church, perhaps um, than any other nation, China now has 50 to 60 million, perhaps, in the house churches there, many which meet underground. But when we look at our nation, our nation is a mission field. We are really the third largest mission field on the face of this planet. After China and India, it would be us with 300 and close to 20 million people. And statistically, we know that only about a third of our people consider themselves evangelical, and I think a lot of them are confused. But in the studies, that is, evangelicals are people who say that they have an understanding of the new birth, of being born from above, born again. And they profess to have been born again and place their trust in Jesus alone for salvation, who lived and died and rose again, and trusting in Him to receive eternal life and personal relationship. Statistically, we know that only about a third of our people say that. 
And so if we just extrapolate that out, in our country, we could say that over 200 million people in our nation, some say as many as 250 million of our citizens are truly lost without Jesus, without eternal life. And they're living their whole lives out of that lostness, out of that brokenness, out of that worldview of the shattered image of God. Or if we bring it down to the level of our county, of Anderson, with 175,000 people, probably a little more churched than a lot of the rest of the nation. But just using that figure, we could say 115,000 people this morning getting up in this county should not be seen first as liberal or conservative or moderate, Republican, Democrat, independent or libertarian, as part of a union movement or not, black, white, brown, male or female, builder or boomer or bridger or a buster or millennial or generation X, Y or Z, upper or middle or lower class, entrepreneur or living on government assistance, but rather what they should be seen as first, primarily, essentially, we should see them as unbelievers, our people who need Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And for those who do not know Jesus, they're acting out of who they are in their lostness. And so our hearts should be filled with love and mercy, even pity for them. No matter, no matter the level of anger or vitriol or ignorance and perplexity they may display toward the church or toward us or even toward Jesus. So Paul loved his people. He understood what was the greatest need that they had. He understood the source from which all of the pain and division among the people sprang. They needed the Lord Jesus, and he was burdened for them. I want to ask you a question. And I have to ask myself this question. Because it's easy to get pulled into these things, the level of the fences. Ask yourself this question. When you look in your heart, have you can't come to the place where you no longer consider people according to worldly standards? That that isn't the first thing you try to find out or you want to know about them. That's really not what is ultimately important. The main thing that you see is this is a person made in the image of God. If they don't know Jesus, they are broken. I am the ambassador that Christ Jesus has put here in their circle. For God to love them through me. Is that what guides your life? That was Paul's heart. That was his disposition. And so Paul knew his people and he loved his people. Is that what characterizes our lives day in and day out? But not only did Paul know his people and love his people, we also see that he tells us that he prayed for his people. In Romans 10 again, he begins by talking about what he is doing in relationship to his people, the Jews. And he says in verse 1 again, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. This is the only place Paul talks about praying for lost people. But he doesn't have to say it more than once for us to know that he really prayed for lost people. And he prayed for his people. We see that Paul regularly took his people before the throne of God in prayer to intercede for their salvation. And I think we can safely say that one of the reasons Paul's heart stayed soft toward his people 
The reason he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish for them was that he prayed for them. He saw their zeal spent in the wrong direction. He saw the anger that it fueled that somehow had been unleashed on him from time to time. But he didn't hate them. He didn't hold animosity toward them. He was brokenhearted for them because he knew they were blind, and so he is praying for them. So he saw the anger. He saw the compromising spirit among the Herodians. But all he felt now was constant sorrow and pity. Someone once noted that it's hard to stay mad at somebody you're praying for or with. And that's good counsel to take into any area of your life. If you're having trouble with somebody in your circle of relationships, in your marriage, with your kids, and you're really angry about something right now, it is hard to stay angry when you really are seriously praying for somebody. Well, Paul here, his heart was soft because he prayed for them. The question is for us, is as ambassadors of Jesus, are we really a people who pray for our people who are walking in spiritual darkness? You know, no one is going to be praying for the salvation of the 200 million Americans who don't know Jesus if we're not praying for them. We are the ones that are called to pray. And Paul prayed for them. And so the question to be, are we simply concerned in these days of division about protecting our rights, avoiding levels of persecution, not being seen as weird, keeping our views and rights supported through political decisions? Or are we really concerned about the souls of the people that we see in this nation that are involved? You know, we are being tested increasingly by pressure in the culture. Is it driving us to be angry with people in our culture? To have animosity toward them? Dare I say sometimes hatred in our hearts? Or is it driving us to be people who are praying, praying for them in their life? More intercession. Because I have peace and security in Jesus. Or are we simply praying for ourselves and simply for the defeat of those who want to stereotype us or do us harm? And there is, you know, an effort in that direction in our nation. It's going to come increasingly. It came again this week where ABC News and NBC labeled the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a group that I've actually contacted before for help. They're one of the nation's most respected law firms protecting religious liberty. But Attorney General Sessions spoke to them this past week. And so ABC News and NBC News labeled the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is comprised of evangelical Christians, as a hate group because they stand for traditional marriage. The reporters at ABC who did this are Pete Madden and Aaron Galloway. From NBC, it came through their LBGTQ desk. That is, they have a desk with a reporter that is dedicated to writing about lesbian gay, transgender, on and on issues with a positive spin on it. So they're not objective. Now the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, is demanding an apology from these news organizations. ABC changed the heading a little bit on what they said. 
They do owe them an apology. They're not a hate group. But this illustrates what is often taking place in our culture in relationship to people who stand for biblical morals. There is a political effort to brand us as haters and bigots who they hope will become toxic in the culture to the point that we're like the KKK. That's their political drive, their desire, what they're seeking to do. We must remember that Paul was often castigated by his culture, by his people as well. His motives were called into question. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. I'm wanting you to see how Paul lived in a world of divisions and how he lived above the fences. So remember, his own people wanted to kill him, but he doesn't hate them. And then even as he's reaching out to the Gentiles, who are idolaters, worshiping many different gods and goddesses. Sometimes their whole economy built around that, such as in Ephesus. Paul says a lot of ugly things got said about him. In 2 Corinthians 6, in verses 4 through 10, he says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings. That's a nice thing to think about, isn't it? Imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory, but notice what he begins to say, and what? Dishonor, bad report, good report, genuine yet regarded as what? Imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And having faced all of that vitriol, he prayed for these people. He kept a sweet and winsome spirit in relationship to these people because he was deeply concerned for them. He genuinely prayed for them because the love of Christ really was in his heart. And that's how Paul was able to live above the fences. Then finally, quickly, he did one other thing, and that is he shared the gospel. Just to wrap this up, I have a long story I won't tell you at this point, but let me just say that Paul knew the answer for these people was the gospel, the good news about Jesus. He had been transformed and set free by Jesus. He wanted them to know that same freedom and joy and peace as well. And so he made it his ambition to share the gospel. We see him doing that all the way through. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And if you trust in him... God will forgive you of all of your sin as a gift and give you eternal life and come live within you by His Spirit and begin to change you to be like Jesus. And Paul preached that message. Paul, he wanted that message to be made plain. I'm not going to take time to read it. It's on the screen. You can pull it up this week. But in Colossians chapter 4, he asked for the Colossian Christians to pray for him that he can make the message plain. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about the sacrifices he made to get the gospel to these people. He says to the Jews, I acted like a Jew in the cultural way that I lived. When I was among the Gentiles, I acted like the Gentiles. 
People who had the law, the Jews, like one who was under the law. The Gentiles who were not under the law, not that he sinned, but he, he lived in a different way, trying to build bridges to those people because he lived above the fences. And he saw them all as needing Jesus. And so he was willing to sacrifice in his life because he knew the greatest thing that they needed in his society and in his world was to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Our greatest task and the most important task for us to carry out as God's people in this culture is to share the good news. That should be our main goal. That is what changes people. That's the answer to the culture wars. Evangelizing our culture, although changing the culture is not our greatest Concerned. It is a byproduct of people coming to know the Lord Jesus in increasing numbers. And the story I was going to tell you was about how that happened in Romania, where the communist government under Ceausescu ruled Romania with an iron fist, persecuted the church. But a reformed pastor, last name Laszlo, came and pastored the church there. It grew to thousands of people in just a few months. And the government tried to shut him down threatened him, they were going to export him or deport him. But he continued discipling people. And finally, the government came, officials, to get him, to take him out of the country. I'm cutting this story very, very short. The people gathered around to protect him. Then more and more people came. And he finally opened his shutters, and this is what he saw out in the streets. Thousands and thousands of people with lit candles protecting him. And that grew out of the fact that the church was impacting the culture and people were turning to Jesus. And out of that is when Romanian communism fell and they became a free society. And so for us, we must share the message. Make sure you know the message. In our church, we offer training in different ways for you to learn how to share the message. Take advantage of that. Work to make your Sunday school class what it should be, a conduit of new people with whom you can share the gospel and pray for them. And if your room is 80% full, it's time for you to launch another class. And tell us and we'll help you do it. If you don't tell us, we're coming to get you. Three, be involved in our outreach efforts. We'll be this fall having an upcoming outreach into probably 30 neighborhoods. And we're going to need you going out as the foot soldiers There will be a door hanger that you will use. It will have a square on it that people can read about all the information about our church. We've already got the plats to all the neighborhoods. It's ready to go. The production of the DVD is hopefully going to soon be done. It's going to be a high-grace, low-risk outreach with door hangers. We encourage you to get out there where people are. Build personal relationships with people that don't know Jesus and invite them here to worship. Go out of your way to get them here and get involved in mission efforts and ministries that take us beyond the walls. If we really care about our people, that should be our greatest concern. And I pray that you will commit yourself to that end, to live above the fences, loving people, praying for people, no longer looking at them through the eyes of the flesh, seeing them as people that need Jesus. That's the great thing, right? And you being the ambassador of Jesus to love them and to share. And even if they throw stuff at you, vitriol, misunderstanding, whatever, just be that sweet lover of souls that Paul was. Let's stand and sing our hymn of commitment today.
is have thine own way, Lord. You respond as God so leads you. Lord, thank you for this example from Paul. Help us to live it out in our very fractured society and to keep our eyes focused in the right direction, our actions moving in the right direction, our hearts warmed in the right way as your people. We do pray for our nation, for our people, Lord, that your spirit would work in such a way that millions and millions of Americans, God would be open and responsive to the gospel and that we would see many saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.